Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I went to that school after nine months. I was completely hooked. I thought, this is my life. This is what I'm going to do. This is amazing. And then they kicked me out of school. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie. I'm Amy. And this is Clever. Today, we are talking to the one and only Marcel Wanders. He's a rock star of design known the world over for infusing his work with irreverent humor, poetry, and romance. Work which spans the spectrum from in-flight tableware to cosmetics packaging to high-end hospitality interiors. His dreamlike furniture and lighting is unmistakable, from the renowned knotted chair to the curvaceous tulip chair or the curious snotty vase. Based in Amsterdam, he's the head of his namesake design studio, which does work for private clients and premium brands such as Capolini, Alessi, Bissaza, Floss, Louis Vuitton, Swarovski, Moy, and many others. He's rich on personality and intrigue. Let's talk to Marcel. Here's Marcel Wanders on a table in one of the meeting rooms of my studio in Amsterdam, looking to the screen with two beautiful girls. And I am designer, I'm art director, and I lead a team of 50 people here in Amsterdam who every day work their butt off on interior design and product design. I'm art director of Moy, which is a company that works with designers around the world to create iconic furniture and lighting. I love design because it's a possibility for creators to do something that really reaches people. The intimacy of product design and the intimacy of interiors is so beautiful and so overwhelming sometimes that I really feel I can do important stuff. I can really take people on a journey. I can give them something that makes them feel different about themselves. To have that feeling that you really do something that makes people's imagination go or makes them feel something unique about themselves or makes them able to step into an unforeseen beautiful future. To be part of that journey of people around the world is something amazing. It's something that keeps me busy since the last 25 years. Well, let's rewind back further than 25 years. Oh. Let's rewind all the way, all the way back to I wasn't born then. young Marcel. <laughs> <laughs> young Marcel. Oh, yes. Paint the picture of your childhood for us. Where were you born? What was your family dynamic like? What kind of kid were you? I was the middle kid of five. And mom and dad, they had a store. And so if stuff broke down, which always happens in a store, of course, then I got it and I took a screwdriver or a hammer and I took it apart. And I was always interested in looking at things and just investigating things and putting it together again. I was always studying these things. I had a bike. I was always, you know, making crazy shit with my bike, you know, making crazy steering wheels, making my bike run backwards if I was pedaling forwards, <laughs> repairing bikes with a rope for two days, but it worked and, you know, stuff like that. And on top of that, I had my own little workshop. I loved making gifts for people. Basically, it started, of course, that, you know, I made stuff and I gave it to someone. And that was always like, uh, yeah, positive feedback. Everybody loved me. So, <laughs> so let's do that more, right? Of course. What kind of gifts would you make? I would glue a piece of crystal to a piece of wood and just 
paint it with green and yellow and then, you know, pack it in a blue paper with a ribbon, whatever. It was nothing special, I think, but, you know, I made things. I and love knowing that crystals came into your life, though, from oh, a very yeah, early very age. Very early, very <laughs> early. Basically, uh, if stuff breaks, you get crystals, right? It's, uh, it's how it goes. <laughs> I found things and I put them together. Maybe I painted a face on it. I don't know. But I was making things. I learned a few important things when making things and giving them to people. That still, you know, is really what gives me pleasure today. And were your parents supportive of you tinkering around and, and making your bike <laughs> go backwards when you pedaled forward? Yeah, I mean... I, was that something that was supported and celebrated in your household? Yeah, I mean, my, my parents loved that, you know, I could keep myself busy, let's say it that way. <laughs> because it made it easy for them to spend a lot of time with the other four. No, I had my own space in the attic, uh, a little room with all my stuff, and yeah, I just had a lot of fun there. My, my father, mother... I mean, there's no creativity runs through the veins of my family, but, you know, they were super happy. I like to draw. I like to make things and they were always supportive of it. Let's move into adolescence because adolescence is a time where some kids feel like very angsty or they feel like they really need to express themselves, rebel against their parents. What kind of teenager were you? I was extremely rebellious. <laughs> Not surprised. I had no choice also. My parents were yeah, wonderful people, but super old-fashioned. And I was going to change the world, so that was not easy. And and so obviously I had to fight a lot. And not only, I think, at home, but you know, also in other things. I had a, my own band. I played the bass guitar and I sang and we were doing rock and roll. And we're doing all kinds yeah. of crazy shit. And then you live in Amsterdam. So you know, there's all this stuff that you have to try, of course. So altogether, <laughs> it was a, a bouncy ride. But I think I had a good upbringing. So at some point, things turn out for the better. You have to experiment. You have to do all these things to become yourselves, right? It's easy to be a child of your parents. But then at some point, you have to also become yourself. And that doesn't automatically fly that comes with pain that comes with experiments and with a lot of fun also of course at what point did you discover art or design as something that you really wanted to get into and go to college to study as i think 15 16 or so and i wanted to do something creative i always kind of knew that that was something i wanted but you know design maybe it did exist i had no idea of it and Someone told me about landscape architecture and I had my own plant corner in the house and I was putting stuff together and gluing plants together and you know, making weird combinations and that was nice. And so I went to the school for a day to check it out. And then at the end of the day, I wasn't so excited. Was, you know, everybody was wearing green boots all day. I'm like, I'm not going to wear green boots all my life. That's not me. So <laughs> then I, I decided that's not me. So then... For two years, I studied some other stuff. And then someone told me there's something like design, which, you know, I had no idea of. And, you know, quite a while ago, design was not ubiquitously present as it became later. But, you know, to make a toaster and maybe a vacuum cleaner, you know, sounded like an amazing thing. So I went to that school after nine months. I was completely hooked. I thought, this is my life. This is what I'm going to do. This is amazing. And then they kicked me out of school. Oh, no. What happened? What? <laughs> yeah, no talent. Uh, yeah, probably no talent. Wait. I did interviews with the, the teachers who kicked me out later also, just to frustrate them a little bit. <laughs> but, but also to get more clarity, because, of course, people, they try to do their best for me also. But, I mean, the school back then, it was a very, like, Bauhaus-oriented, you know, bit classical design school like most schools probably all schools in those days were and i was you know experimenting i was trying stuff out and i was just not following maybe the rules so much i was mm. trying to make them or try to do something different because i thought that was so cool about design that you would do something in a different way and not in the same way and so yeah basically my attitude to experimentation and tremendous passion that i have in everything that i do was a bit challenging for the teachers, I think. And so I tried to find another school that would want to have me, which was not so easy. <laughs> 
did that feel like a rejection or did that feel like an affirmation of your pioneering, rebellious, groundbreaking spirit? It was awful. I think I was 19 years old, not the age that you want to cry in the corner of your school, but I did. I was, I was no. devastated. I'm like, this is what I want to do. And this is the school I have to be. And, I, and they, it's my first huge, big failure. It's like I was devastated, really devastated. How did you recover from that? Fortunately, you know, that became anger, which is a very positive uh, <laughs> positive <laughs> energy if you want to get something done. It's a fiery fuel, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went to a school in Maastricht that wanted to have me, which is really not the best school, but, you know, I, they wanted to have me. And then the year after, I started studying also on another school. So I did one day school, which is more about jewelry, and another school that was really about industrial design. But that was in the evenings and the weekends, so I did two schools. And then at the end, I stopped with these two, and I, I went to another school, which is an R&M. You know, by then, my, my luck had turned. Uh, I started to understand what design was. I won a few design prizes already. My work was exhibited in important exhibitions while I was in school. Uh, some products were in production. The Olympic Games would come to Amsterdam. So there was a question, who could design the prizes for the Olympic Games? And so I thought it was cool. At the end, there was like 76 students who brought their work to the jury and out of the 76, 66 were from design school, the school that I was kicked out of. And then oh. there was me. And uh, so these 66 kids all had been working together with the teachers for three months, whatever, to do all this. And I had done my proposal just in my evening hours because basically my school didn't support this whole idea. And then I won. <laughs> I won. <laughs> out of Vindication. Rain. And I remember to the day that, you know, I was working so hard and I was pushing so hard and did like, there was nothing I didn't study. There was no moment that I didn't think of all the big players and all the thoughts I could think of. But that was like, suddenly I felt I'm done. I'm accomplished. I'm ready for two weeks. <laughs> I did at least nothing, nothing. There's nothing, nothing. And then of course, I started to move ahead. But I remember that I felt like I'm basically done. I have proven my point and I'm going to be a great designer. And yeah, that was cool. That was cool. After graduating and feeling like you've arrived and you're clearly on your way to becoming the world's leading yeah, designer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so how do you take those first well, I, few steps into the professional? After these two weeks, I became a little bit more modest, of course, right? You understand, you understand that? <laughs> I'm sure. It was just, just two weeks of yes. pleasure and then, of course, you know, there was big problems and I had to study again and like, oh, I have to save the world. I have to try to find a way <laughs> to do this job and, you know, of course, hard work. Well, how did you do that? What were the first few steps into the professional world for you? I was lucky because the last years of my school, again, what I said, some work was in production. I had won a few prizes. I had work in big exhibitions. So by then I was yeah, a bit known here in this little country. So it's not a lot, but yeah, for that moment, it was mm -hmm. a lot. So my work was presented in the National Design Magazine on the cover and published with like eight or nine pages. So it was really ridiculous in a way. Uh, and so ultimately I had quite some work also. Quite a lot of it was of course very cultural work. One of the projects was a project for KLM. I was asked to do the business class service, the in-flight service. So I did that and there was three other groups that also were in a two big studios here in the Netherlands. And then also Borodjik Sipek was asked. So I was the Brookie, the little guy. And then there was Borodjik Sipek, which was at the top of his career. And of course, these two big studios, they won because KLM was super happy to work with a serious company and not with two crazy people. And I got to talk with these guys and the studio that won the competition. They asked me, Marcel, don't you want to come work with us? And I thought, this is great. You know, I can really do a few years of real practice and not only cultural stuff, but real stuff, right? Real work. And so I said, okay, uh, I'll come work with you. If I get paid more than any other designer in the team, I'll be there only for three years. <laughs> I'll pick my own 
projects. And the first project that I want to do is the KLM project. And I said, yes, okay, of course. <laughs> and so I was there for three years working on the KLM project and so many others. And it was an amazing time. It was an amazing time. I did all kinds of interesting stuff for telecom. I did stuff for pregnancy tests. I did you know, all kinds of stuff and learned a lot from a you know, fantastic team of really great designers. That does sound really, really yeah. exciting. I'm also very impressed and a little bit jealous of your ballsiness to just demand what you want and then get it. <laughs> yeah, I had my own studio and my studio was having a lot of work. So I had to stop, you know, for two, three years, my company, which is nothing, but it was my company, right? I'm like, okay, I will do it. But, you know, basically you're buying my company for a few years. So you better, you know, come up with something. Sure. If they wouldn't have done it, it would be also fine. So they were cool with it. I was cool with it. And we had a wonderful time. You've had a long career with many dazzling chapters. Before I started there, it was like one, one, one and a half year. And then I worked with them for three years. Then I started a studio together with three others. We shared a space, but basically I started my own studio, which moved then to Amsterdam later. And that's what I'm doing since. But there's all kinds of steps, of course. 2001, then suddenly there's Moy, and we start to do interior design. So there's quite a few big, important steps in my life, of course, like in the life of everybody, right? Uh, you get married, you get a baby, you know, big, big things. Oh, yeah. Tell us about these big, important steps. Let's see the big picture. Coming out of school, working for three years at Landmark setting up my studio in Rotterdam, then three years later, moving to Amsterdam, then making the Not a Chair, working with Capellini, making the Airbus Notivas, then setting up Moy, doing my first interior project, the big one in Miami. My daughter gets born. Lately, uh, I did a big exhibition on my work in the Stelic Museum in Amsterdam. So yeah, a few highlights. Here there. Yes. Just a few. <laughs> yeah, just a few. <laughs> when your daughter was born, did that shift your perspective at all? Did that bring anything into focus or did that change your priorities? How did that affect you and your work? No, not at all. I think really, uh, yeah, it sounds really awful. I'm an awful father. I'm not. I have a wonderful relationship, an extremely nice daughter, which, you know, I have a great relationship with. But basically... I know I didn't start suddenly to make children's toys or you know all that stuff. I didn't suddenly start to work less, you know, really didn't change so much for me. I just felt, you know, of course, more whole and I felt more responsible, but you know, I always felt responsible for a lot of things. It didn't really make a big difference. I think over time my daughter became more important when she grew older. Today I I think it is more meaningful for me than you know, when she was born. That's maybe weird, but if I'm honestly, that, that's basically it. But, you know, I never felt that there is any competition between my family or my work. I've always took the time to be there with my family and I always took the time for my work. The only one who maybe didn't get time enough sometimes was me. But I'm super okay with that. I have not too many needs on that point. Me time. Me time, right. Yeah. Self-care. <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't need it so much. I mean, if I'm with my family or I'm at work, that's me time, right? I, I don't need nothing else. Well, I feel like if you're really passionate about what you do, a lot of times it doesn't feel different than spending time just doing things you love. It kind of feels like me time. I wouldn't know what to have to do in me time, to be honest. <laughs> I'm happy the way it is. It's, it's, it's busy, but it's beautiful. Yeah. And you've had a lot of successes along the way. You outlined a lot of these really pivotal moments. But did you ever have a moment where there was an incredible challenge or something that just didn't work out that was kind of disappointing? Or can you talk a little bit about anything in your past that might have, you know, shaped the next decisions you made? What was, I think, pivotal when I was a young professional was that my girlfriend became very ill. And so for seven years, she's been like super ill to the extent that sometimes in the morning I, I just checked out if she was still alive. So for seven years, that was quite a thing. And so in that period, we together have been studying massively all kinds of alternative 
ways of life and alternative medication, alternative therapies. And in those spirits, I mean, I hope you understand today, new age, we maybe have understood that, you know, it's part of our, our DNA and our lives and who we are. But like 25 years ago, if you as a designer were interested in new age, you're basically an idiot. So it was difficult to find a way to implement more like spiritual ideas or more non-rational ideas, but human ideas into the world of design that was dominated by rationale and logic mm. and concept. So that was very difficult. It's been hard to sometimes find a way to have conversation with like-minded people. And, and I remember that, of course, at some of you feel strong and other moments you feel weak. And I told my girlfriend, it's so terrible. I can talk to no one. Nobody gets it. And then she says, well, I, I can find no one who I can talk to. And then she said, well, but just imagine there is someone that you could talk to. How would they find you? And that was such a beautiful thing to say. And I was so shocked by the sheer simplicity of what she said but how how beautiful it was and so i thought yeah if, if i can find them you know they can't also find me and so basically i started writing down what i kind of had deducted from this life and uh, i built a bit of a, a strategy and a philosophy around design that was mine and so i wrote the book in 10 chapters on on my thinking and it was great for me. So that was really important. And the book was published in 1996. And the first thing that I made after the book was ready was another chair. And the first thing that was completely like embedding all these points that were in the book was another chair. So it must have been a great thing to put these things in order, to make that blur of thoughts, to make that come alive in 10 insights that were in that book. And still today... Sometimes, sometimes I read that little book. It's a little miracle. It's, it's something that I feel very genuinely proud and happy with that I was able to do that and I had the time to do it. And yeah, and basically someone told me you should scream if you want to be heard. It's something <laughs> that is beautiful. Sometimes you have to scream if you want to be heard. Was that a vulnerable process or a cathartic process? Or I both? think I, I've always been a little bit of a bold guy. So I don't think it's a vulnerable situation to write down what you think. I don't feel I make myself very vulnerable to say what I feel. Of course, if you think about everything, which I think as a designer you kind of do, then you live in that blur of questions and cracks in the surface and opportunities and possibilities. If you want to make your own thoughts complete, then at some point you have to decide how you can make it more precise so you have to at some point write it down you have to, to decide okay this belongs to this this belongs to this this is how i explain myself this and this is how i explain someone else that and so you have to write it down and that's something that as designer basically we're not writers so it's tough it's difficult to do it well but i felt i have to do it and so uh, yeah I, I did it yeah i'm curious having done that has it served you as a sort of roadmap or a reminder of your purpose and your direction at times yeah for sure it served me i would say in the first place that when it was done it was clear to myself what i thought because again you think about a thousand things but if you can bring it back to 10 now you've got something to work with now you've got something that you can follow now you've got something to do and i remember I thought like, oh my God, I was always so busy. Now, when I write this down, I'm going to be so busy. <laughs> but the beautiful thing was that when I wrote all this down, I, I looked at the projects I was doing and I was like, there's 30, 40% of the projects that I don't have to do. Someone else maybe, <laughs> but I don't have to do those anymore. So it's really nice if you really know what you're doing, what you're trying to prove, who you're trying to be. But of course, and, and now that book is, you know, it's 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 an old book, so I don't use it for that anymore. But it's fun for me to read it back and see how these 10 insights have, have each of them has kind of grown out to be more mature, more deep, more research, more proven. So it's beautiful. So it's still important to me, but we're happily further developed today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. 
but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. You've really made an illustrious catalog of work in the product and 
furniture and interiors categories. But recently, I think you told me you went and got an MBA. And I know you've been city hopping a bit, living for a stint in San Francisco and Milan. And I'm wondering what's going on with current Marcel? You seem like you're on a new chapter of exploration. Well, I lived all my life in Amsterdam. I've always traveled a lot, like half of my time, but still I live in Amsterdam and I consider myself an Amsterdam, which is great. I love the city and I don't want to ever move, move, move. But I also felt like it's a bit strange that if I wouldn't have become a designer or I wouldn't have had my studio, I probably would have lived for two years in New York and one year in London. And maybe that's all an illusion, but that's an illusion that makes me happy. So I have it. And so that would have been good for me. It's good for people, I think, to travel. And so I have never done really living somewhere else. And I thought like maybe if I organize myself well, and this is like 10 years ago, maybe later I, I can start doing this. And because I, now it was difficult because my studio is not organized for me not to be there. My daughter is not old enough for me to be away and I was doing quite a few real estate projects in Amsterdam which needed my presence and so I thought like I'm going to organize that something like three four years ago I felt you know it's time to do this and so I thought to myself we're going to do five years five cities more or less right it's just a bit of an idea it's a concept a concept that can be uh, you know changed so ultimately what I did in 2014 I did my uh, MBA at uh, NCA in uh, Fontainebleau near Paris an amazing experience that was so vital for me you know to work with such different type of people on such different type of knowledge and such different type of opportunities it was amazing then the year after having my MBA I thought let's go to San Francisco let's work with uh, venture capital firms let's work with uh, startups and so I did I, I became a uh, advisors to venture capital firms and I worked together with some startups and then after I went to Milano I was there for a lot that year and then this year I'm a lot in Budapest in Amsterdam so I take a little bit of a, a leap year and then next year I might go to Doha. Let's talk about your creative process because that's a pretty magical mind under that mop of of gray hair. How does it go down? So inspiration, people think it comes from traveling or from reading books or so, but inspiration, according to me, sits inside. Inspiration is the burning fire that drives everything you are, that drives everything you think. It is basically the big question of your life. What do you do here? What's important? How do you do that? How can I make a design topology that's more humanistic, that's more romantic, that's less technocratic, that is more durable and that generates psychological sustainability in the world? So that is a question. That is the purpose of everything I am. That is what I'm going to prove. That's what I'm going to do. And so everything I see, everything I read, everything I hear, everything I smell, Everything that comes my way is selected on this magnetic question. That, that, that question is a big, big, big magnet. And if anything passes by that can be meaningful in any way on that subject, to be a little bit of a part of an answer of that subject, it will stick on my brain and will not leave. Ah. So the inspiration is that question. The answers come from outside. And they come from any possible direction, of course. Sometimes you know, crazy shit happens and it and still is meaningful to a thought. You never know. But the inspiration is inside. That's a question that is with me for 25 years and it hardly changed. Are there any conditions you can create for yourself that are conducive to synthesizing all of that stimuli? No, the only thing that I have to do is not sleep. Oh. I hardly have a good idea when I sleep. So not sleeping is a good thing. Oh, interesting. I am way less productive when I'm not sleeping. <laughs> Let's explain it this way. If you tie me on a chair, you blindfold me in the dark, I'll be inspired. My inspiration comes from inside. There's always, you know, I'm active. And I'm telling myself this also to make sure that there will never be a situation that I feel I cannot be creative because I don't Mm -hmm. accept any rules for creativity. It will be there Mm. because I demand it to be there. I'm not going to be in a position that, oh, I can't travel, so I can't work. 
There's nothing nice to read. I have no ideas. Fuck that. <laughs> There's no rules for creativity. I will find the answers on my questions. I will. Nothing can stop that. Follow-up question. If you're this ever-flowing fountain of ideas, what's your editing process like? I mean, are all these ideas worthy or do you have to toss them out? And if so, what's your criteria? I make huge amount of irrelevant and unimportant things. (laughs) And the good thing is that sometimes that's something I see myself. Sometimes my clients or my friends, they hold me back and say, like, Marcel, are you crazy? Or this is not worthwhile. And sometimes, you know, nobody sees it and the market thinks like, what was this guy sniffing? I don't know. <laughs> of course, we have all these layers of people and systems to find out what are the best things. And, you know, of course, a big part of that selection process is my own hunch, my own experience and my own interest in things. But, you know, sometimes you feel that your clients are holding you back and sometimes super frustrating. But I I remember myself, I work with people I respect. I work with people I trust have the best interest in this project. So if they want to stop it, They might know something or feel something that I don't. I think there's always a way to make all the parties in the program excited, happy, and cooperative. There's always a way. I was going to ask you about that because clients are clearly coming to you because you've created this brand and you have this wonderful mind that creates playful and surprising things. But how are you able to communicate that like in a client meeting and translate all of those thoughts into something that the client can kind of understand? We do work and it's visible. So people come our way and that's cool. And we try to really connect to the nicest ones and the most friendly people because we like to work with friendly people, generous and friendly people. And so then we start listening. We start to listen to people because if if we work with people that we respect, then I'm not going to tell them what to do. I'm going to ask them what what are we going to do. Basically, if I think about what we do in general, if I make an object, I feel that it's my baby, right? So And of course, Mm -hmm. if it's my baby, I'm the mother. And and the client, my client is the father. And so obviously, to to make good babies, you, you have to make sure that you find a beautiful father because you can't make a beautiful child with an ugly father. <laughs> uh, you can't make an intelligent child with a dumb father. So you find good fathers. Now, if you have that father, you have to make sure that he gets a chance to put his genetic information, his like his quality, his power, his superpowers, he has to be able to put that in that project. So you want to work together. I mean, you want to make sure also that the father at the end of the line, when the baby is out, that the father recognizes the child as his. Otherwise, he doesn't take care of it. So all that makes sure that if you listen and if you are with a client together on a project, of course, if you show a drawing... He recognized that drawing from the conversation you had before. So it becomes more easy to explain what you want to do. Uh, And it's not just like only a big surprise. It's a surprise, but it's also a recognition. People see, ah, yes, yes, that's really, uh, we we talked about that. And now I see it real. It's different than I thought, but it's the thing, right? So you want to make sure that you have a positive working relationship with respect to get the best of both worlds or all worlds, let's say that way into the project. I love that analogy because so often when babies are born, you can recognize both parents and the baby, but they never look like what you would imagine a hybrid of those two individuals would look like. So that element of the father being able to recognize itself so that he can take care of the project is is a really it's super important. It's, it's super important. important. Yeah. I hear stories of designers that, you know, they did design a chair for company X and then the company X doesn't want it. And they go with the same drawing to company Y. And I don't know, I've tried it once or twice. It never works. And I don't want it to work. It, it, it's ridiculous if it could work. It's like being a cuckoo. You put the egg in someone else's nest. It's not what I am. <laughs> I'm a nest builder. I build okay. nests. <laughs> okay. I build nest, yeah. Yeah, there might be cuckoo in my nest. Yeah. That's, that's. <laughs> okay, so you've had a pretty public life. I mean, you're on the map as a designer. You've done a lot of interviews, a lot of public speaking, a lot of appearances. Do you think the general public's perception of you is who you are? 
And often designers don't have a chance to really talk about much more than their last project in media opportunities. So I want to know if there's something that you think the people would be surprised to learn about you. Well, I'm sure there's huge amount of things they don't know. And whatever I do or say, the amount of talk that goes around the world is just like incredible. And it could be funny if it wasn't so dramatic sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know exactly what people think. I just did a show today. I was on a website and it's, it's, I don't know, some celebrity website. Uh, You put a name in and then you get all kinds of information about that guy which is given by people who read those things. And it turned out that 40% of the people think I'm bisexual. So that for instance is something that people think, and I know it's not true. <laughs> I did some experimentations, but you know, I really have no talent on the subject. So yeah, people <laughs> think things. I don't know. They, they come up with ideas. I mean, whatever. Uh, I, I, I think I'm, I'm very open. I, there's very little I, I hide. I, I don't, a lot of people need a lot of privacy. I don't. There's really not so much that, you know, that I want to hide in my life. I mean, I, I have a fun life. You know, if you make a photo while I have fun, uh, I yeah, just <laughs> enjoy the ride. It's my life. I'm not difficult to people. I'm a friendly person. So I don't know. I don't have so much uh, privacy issues. And I think I'm pretty open in, in what I think and, and what I feel. And so basically... Theoretically, people could really understand who I am, but I think at the end, what they really think about me, I I don't know. <laughs> but but you might have an idea. What do people think about me? <laughs> but if I ask it, of course, I don't get the real answers. You, you might have asked it and you might have gotten an answer. You know, I, that's an interesting question. I think that you definitely give off kind of a swagger and a charisma that I think intimidates people and excites people. So then the shallow, simple people will come to really shallow, simple conclusions about you. And the more thoughtful people will investigate your work and think about your humor and the way that you're willing to challenge things. I'll tell you something else. The really thoughtful people uh-huh. in design in design are the most difficult ones because the people who think about design they have an opinion about how things should be. And so they become design fundamentalists because they think that now, because they know how things should be done, they think that therefore they know how I should do my work, Uh, which of course is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Uh, It's it's design fundamentalism, right? I mean, we don't want it in the politics, but in design, it's it's the one treatment that we give each other. It's, it's Which really, is it's counterproductive to the whole design process. I, the to, whole point of design is yes. that we have different opinions <laughs> and that we can excite each other with a new idea. Yes. Instead, instead, the people who really think they know design, they have their own idea and they think everybody should follow that principle, which is ridiculous. Design fundamentalism is a big thing. We should write a book about it. It would be so mm. much fun. It would be a very <laughs> cynical book, I think, which maybe I, I, I therefore shouldn't make. If, if you think about what people think about things, it's really dominated by what they think for themselves. They think, I want to do design this way, or I think this is the right way. And then obviously, if someone else doesn't do that or takes more liberties, then basically that is a whore or it is something that has no mentality or spine and is doing the wrong things, works for the wrong people, blah, blah. It's a, it's an interesting subject. Uh, we don't have to talk about this in length because it's really not a nice subject, but it's uh, maybe something you could study and uh, let me know what you think. Haters going to hate, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't, don't make it so small. It's bigger. Okay. It's more ubiquitous than a few people that do hate other people it's it's really see we we all think that you know this design stuff it's so important so we think about it or or we don't we take the thoughts from someone else and we make it ours we work with it day and night and then obviously it must be right and if it's right then other people must do the same and if they don't they're basically wrong so it is something that all of us have if we are not very careful Yes, I see what you're saying. It's not a few people. It's most of us. I have to fight it myself. I see work and I'm like, mm, 
and I really try to be straightforward and think, like, okay, this is not my work. This doesn't have to follow my rules. Let's look at it again. And I'm mm -hmm. trying. It's very easy to be a fundamentalist because you don't have to doubt your life, but it's healthy to doubt. Yeah, I yes. agree with that. And I think that the idea of design fundamentalist, I mean, that kind of crosses over to anything right in, into your life I and mean, how you view the world. Yeah, absolutely. OK, so we talked about the fact that you don't have me time, but do you derive fulfillment from anything you do or anything outside of work? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a hobby? <laughs> I've got great friends. And uh, I, I've got uh, my family and I've got, I've got a little boat here in the canal, which in the summer is nice. And, uh, uh, you know, a very simple man, a very simple guy. I don't have strange hobbies now. Not at all, in fact. <laughs> but I do nothing. I read books, I read books, I read books. Uh, yeah, I read. Wait, do you read like fiction or nonfiction or is it only design books? Only nonfiction. Nonfiction. I read stuff about the brain, about psychology and uh, uh, nanostructures, finance, whatever. Every, <laughs> everything I don't know. And that's a lot. So, <laughs> you like to keep learning. It also sounds it, like yeah. human connection is something that you like to. Absolutely. It's uh, yeah. the key. We all do. The key, yeah. the key to happiness, right? Yeah, I think so. Alone. Happiness, mm, no. Yeah, isolation, really. no good. All right. <laughs> Back to your studio. What's the future of your studio? What's exciting? What are you? What would you love to do? Or where would you love for it to go? Well, uh, we have a fantastic studio. We're about fifty people, and uh, and the studio is, yeah, it's a very special place. We we started doing product design we started now to do interior design for a few years the, the, see the philosophy of my work things are always whole they're always like you have to look at them from all sides if, if i make a cup i don't care about the ceramic i care about everything and so basically we look at projects from from all kinds of ways everything becomes an opera everything has thousand things to be decided on and so the teams are very multidisciplinary and that's something that is so beautiful because you get uh all these all these specialists that work together in in such a wonderful way and for a special project sometimes we we take aboard other people that have a crazy specialism it could be a poet could be psychologists could be whatever a police guy we find people and we get them into the studio to make our 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 projects vital and to get knowledge that otherwise you wouldn't have we have photographers in house, we have graphic designers, we have virtual designers, we have all, all these kind of people and they, they work together. I think that's something that is going to shape the result of our projects in, in the future. You see also that, you know, where we used to do a chair for a company today, we design a collection and we explain exactly how to present it. We work together with the companies on, on how to PR it and to photograph it and how to put it in the stores and basically how tomorrow to be just a more interesting company. And that's that's cool. I like to learn. I'm born to learn. I'm uh, <laughs> bored fast. And so I really love to, to find areas that uh, I, I don't know how to do it. And, and so I find people around me that, that, that help us create and that help me learn. And so the studio is a place of, of creative superheroes. And it's wonderful to lead them to do something that we're all going to be happy and proud of. So speaking of the studio and all the superheroes, you've stated your mission is here to create an environment of love, live with passion and make our most exciting dreams come true. Yeah, that's a mission. Uh, that's a mission. I, I wrote down probably like 22 years ago. It's, it's really fun. To, and I've, I, sometimes I, I put the comma different, but it go, and then it goes back. It's not, nothing has ever changed. That's a grand mission. And it's one that feels very celestial and open-ended. And so I wonder if you can define like personally what your most exciting dream is that has yet to come true. Can you put any descriptors to that? Uh, 
big picture, I mean, the small picture, I want to do so many wonderful projects and make little, little, little steps. I think the world is uh, dominated by the thought that the big steps are so important. I just, I just love the small steps. I love, love, love little victories. I can have 15 on a day and I love that. And I, I really think that we were over committed to the big steps because you know, the big steps really cannot happen without small steps. So just what I really want for the future of my life and my studio. I want us to do a huge amount of little victories, a huge amount of little victories and enjoy all of them because that is what's going to make us happy. It's nice if in five years time we did something, but basically if it means that for the five years in between, we just work hard and just like hope it's happening, I'd rather have 15,000 little victories. Having said that, two things that really I'm bound to do, I'm really want to do it i want to do an opera in in the met uh, in new york i really want to to take that universe and just make it completely kind of take over the experience that people have we make products we make interiors and in, in an interior you basically invite people to feel things to experience things but in an opera now it's like you kind of have them completely i mean you there's no, they cannot escape anymore and so they're on that train with me and i'm just gonna you know give them that unique everlasting memory of an experience that is just just like yeah, once in a lifetime. So that is something I really, really, really want to do. And I want to do it once only. So I'm going to do one opera and it's going to be in the Met. So you can't buy tickets yet, but you know, be prepared. It's going to happen. And then the other thing I want to do is I want to do a big a grand mosque in the Middle East. It is a super interesting as a creative project i think more than that i think the design is political activity and it has a, a huge influence on, on what people think in the world it is a force for good and it's important that through design we make connections through cultures and also especially where you know it is important to show that you know people can work together and can respect each other. And so therefore, I think it would be amazing if the right people in the Middle East trust me to make them a great mosque. And if then I can make them the most amazing mosque ever, that is truly contemporary, but it's truly a celebration of their wonderful culture. And that's something I really want to do. And I started researching and that's a project I kind of started with studying. I do a lot of studies for mosques. But uh, also that's going to take a while. It's going to be at least 10 years from now that, you know, maybe I can start because it's a, it's, it's a new language that I have to study, but I'm on that. Wow. I'm excited for both of those. <laughs> what do you have coming up that our listeners should take note of and, and be on the lookout for? Oh, tonight I'm going to have dinner with friends. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are we all invited? <laughs> uh, yeah, if you come over, you're more than happy to, to do the espresso at the end of the night. Uh, what we should know now, I mean, we are uh, opening very soon a hotel in Doha, which is an amazing hotel. It's a Mondrian hotel. It's a sister of the Mondrian that we did in Miami, but it's real Doha. That's a big thing uh, for, for me and my studio. Of course, there's uh, the fair in Milano coming up, and we all know so what that means, right, Amy? Yes. That, that's going to be great fun. And this year, we're going to show you know, a lot of cool stuff, a lot of new things. With Moy, we have a very special presentation this year. Uh, even for people who have been there year on year, they're going to be happily surprised to see us in a new way. Um, yeah, super interesting stuff. I hope that people visit us also in the real in in our new york showroom everybody's always welcome and uh we're happy to share what we do there i want to thank you for being so candid and sharing your personal vision for changing the world with us thank you so much my pleasure take care marcel hope to see you soon i want to be inside of his brain I love that he talked about inspiration being something that's inside of him that he can channel. He said he makes a lot of work, you know, and sometimes he shows it to people and they're like, no, no, you shouldn't do that. And then some people are like, yes, this is an amazing idea. So I think it's really important to look at inspiration as something that comes from actually 
making things or writing things down or just trying all kinds of things. It's more about the amount of work and being prolific and then finding something within all of that that works rather than just like sitting around waiting for like, you know, the sunset to inspire you to make something. Like you can't go out in search of an epiphany, right? Right. But I I think it's really important that he said it's something inside because so many people think that inspiration is an external thing that they have to find from somewhere as opposed to a nourishing of your internal world with external stimuli. And I think it's a parallel to self-worth. People sometimes look for their self-worth in external validation, and it's ultimately a recipe for failure and emotional instability and energetic meltdowns. Sometimes external validation can nourish your self-worth, but your self-worth comes from within and you're in charge of feeding it with the types of things that you seek out and the way that you take care of it. And inspiration is the same way. You're in charge of feeding it and taking care of it, but it's inside already. You just have to like maintain the apparatus. Right. (laughs) I also loved, loved, loved the way he talked about a project is a baby, which we can all relate to, right? When we give our creative selves over to a project, it really is like birthing a baby. And I didn't get a chance to ask him about postpartum because that I have a legit question about whether he feels the up and down of, mm-hmm. of giving birth to a project. But this two-parent situation, these two genetic inputs that have to happen to create this, this project, and absolutely the father has to recognize himself in this baby or else he won't feel compelled to take care of it and that idea of like the the hopeful designer going around with this portfolio full of ideas client after client saying you know don't you want to make my project you can see now how that doesn't work it has to start with this communion of two genetic identities and then it has to be born from that yeah and i think that the brands you know they come to him for something in particular. They don't come to him because he designed a chair and they want to make it. They come to him because of his brain um, and the creativity and the studio's message that they put out there. So, you know, designers not only need to be able to make or design beautiful things, but they also need to have a mission and a philosophy. And I love that he wrote that down like right away in the beginning so that people kind of know exactly who he is and what he stands for and, and what he wants his studio to, to make and, and how, how he wants them to be presented. Okay, one last thing I think that was really awesome about this, and I'm going to remind myself to practice this, the small victories Mm. A gazillion small victories in your lifetime, I think, is ultimately a more enjoyable life than, you know, years and years of <laughs> misery and hard labor <laughs> for, for like the one big victory. Right. Which we all know doesn't have as big of an impact as we think it does. You can't live forever off like one accomplishment. So celebrating the small victories, I think, is exactly what keeps your engine fired up to keep doing more. Absolutely. Hey, thanks for listening. Before we wrap this up, we have some exciting news. We're producing our first sponsored episode in collaboration with Interface, and we can't wait to share it with you. It's one of our favorite topics, the changing workplace. We're going to talk to two people in the commercial design and contract industry about how the way we work is affecting design and how the design industry is responding to these changes. Plus, it's all about positivity. So earmark this and stay tuned. And subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Marcel's work. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We totally love hearing from you. This episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navaris with music by L1011. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.